This is On Story from Austin Film Festival. I'm your host, Barbara Morgan. Over the next few weeks, we'll be releasing a new series titled AFF at Home. Austin Film Festival's mission has always been to further the art and craft of storytelling. When we started the script competitions and festival in 1994, it was with the intention of creating a community for writers to engage with one another and to create a network that connects craft to career. Times of uncertainty and conflict often bring out the best stories. We truly believe that now is the time for storytellers to work through everything that's happening. If you're looking for a little inspiration or motivation to get back to your script, we're here to help. We have over 26 years of archived panels that we'll be curating and releasing every Wednesday to help you work through challenges you might be facing in your work. So if you're new to this, there's no better time to start than now. And if you're part of our extended family already, focusing on your work may be the best way to work through the uncertainty of our time. Welcome to week nine of AFF at Home. This week, we're exploring the collaborative process behind writing for animation. The creative leads behind the animated Netflix series, Seis Manos, joined 2019's Austin Film Festival to discuss how writers work with animation teams to bring their stories from script to sketch. Welcome to Writing for Animation, uh, and I'd like to bring up, without further ado, uh, Brad Graber, who's the director of Powerhouse uh, Animation Studios and also the co-creator of Seis Manos, which we'll be talking about, Alvaro Rodriguez, who is also the EP and co-creator of Seis Manos, in addition to things like From Dusk Till Dawn, this TV series and the upcoming show Rust on Showtime, um, and Willis Bolner, who directed all the episodes of the series. Just to gauge the room, um, who here is interested in, in making their own animated show or film? Oh, yes. well, I mean, I guess that's a good, you're in the right place. Uh, who here has seen Seis Manos on Netflix? Right on. Okay. Well, we'll be talking about, we'll be using Seis Manos as a case study to kind of talk about uh, how you break in and how you make something successful that's animated in this kind of changing time and, and how to uh, find your own voice within it. Um, I'm holding a lot of things, but let's start from the beginning. Okay, um, Seis Manos just came out a month ago? Three weeks ago? About three, yeah, three and a half weeks ago, yeah. But I imagine it's been in the works for a lot longer than that. And I think it started with you, Brad. Was, was the kernel, the seed that was with you? It, initially, yes. And, you know, it, it, everybody who touches a project adds something to it, and it becomes so much more than it initially was. But it initially was just a chance to do a kung fu thing based in Mexico uh, that was action-oriented, and we were super excited about it. And then uh, we did an animated trailer for it just to show people what that would look like. This is before Powerhouse had done Castlevania. Has people? Has anybody seen Castlevania on Netflix? Okay, hey. Oh, good. Um, hey. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, it, you know, before that, everybody was talking about how pretty much if it didn't work for the 6 to 11 dem- demographic, if it wasn't for kids, if it didn't sell toys, you know, pretty much you shouldn't be pitching it because, you know, there's, there's no market for that sort of thing. While we were... Uh, we, we had this concept and we did an animated test for it. And it's actually that test that we showed to the producers of Castlevania was a Seis Manos test uh, to try to convince them to hire us as the studio to work on that project. Um, we used Carl Thiel, uh, an Austin-based uh, musician, to do a score for that. And he introduced me to Alvaro, uh, who then wrote the pilot. And it became so much more from the initial idea. So the idea just at, just as for, at first was... Uh, set in Mexico with kind of kung fu ideas, and that was from there. 
like how did that evolve? What were the steps you guys took to to uh, grow it to where it is today, or maybe do a, a different iteration before it became today? Like what were the step one, step two of how it kind of grew into what we what we know? Okay. Um, Initially, it was kind of just based on wanting to do a cool action piece. Like yeah. I'm, I'm a I'm a martial arts guy. I love kung fu. Uh, studied it my whole life, just about, and uh, wanted to do something that kind of had multiple characters with multiple styles. That was a tribute to the old Shaw Brothers type stuff that used to watch growing up on UHF TV. Uh, you know, kung fu theater sort of stuff. Um, and then, you know, growing up in Texas. You know, there was so much of the urban legend stuff that was uh, based on the Adolfo Constanzo murders that happened in Matamortis, Texas, where the narco-Satanists were taking body parts and putting them into buckets and all of that other sort of stuff. And so that, that's where the initial kernel of the idea came. But luckily, we hired a, a, a brilliant, wonderful writer, uh, Alvaro, to come in, and he actually came into the animation studio and wrote the pilot over the course of a, a few weeks. Um, and then it, it just... Characters changed, lots of stuff shifted, everything grew, and you know that's how it, that's how it generally goes. Al, do you remember the first meeting or kind of your impressions at yeah, the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. Carl Thiel, uh, as Brad mentioned, is a composer. He worked a lot with my cousin Robert Rodriguez and scored a lot of his films for many years and worked with him, um, you know, on everything from I think probably around Spy Kids. One of the Spy Kids movies was the first one, and then up through Grindhouse and um, Planet Terror and stuff like that. And Carl introduced me to Brad, and I just, I saw the thing, and I was like, wow. I'd never really done anything in the animated space before, but I really liked what this thing could be. And, um, and it was a kind of a thing of, of, by not knowing the rules kind of thing, that, that I wasn't hampered by that. And so we just started to talk about this thing, talk about this concept, and, um, and uh, developed the characters, and I, and I did uh, write the pilot, and we, um, we took it around to a bunch of different people uh, that we met with, and we got kind of a lot of, like, we don't know what this is kind of shrugs. We either had people who liked it, uh, liked the concept, and wanted to do it for a very low budget, but, you know, part of the DNA of the show, as Brad was talking about, was kind of the authenticity of the fighting styles and the fight choreography, and that was going to take time and money and expertise and all of that stuff. Or we had people who said, like, God, you know, this were, like, really funny. We could put it on Adult Swim, but we, don't, we just don't know where this belongs. And um, so for a time, it, it kind of laid dormant a little bit. We kept trying to push things a little bit more and push things a little bit more. And, uh, but yet yeah, the concept did evolve over a period of time from characters that, that completely changed. If you look at that original teaser, which I think you might be able to find online, the characters look really radically different from the way they do in the final show. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, it's the first time I remember being engaged with the material was just like, wow, this is really cool. And I feel like this is a, um, a canvas that I really want to paint on. Cool. And then Willis, at what point in this timeline did you start getting involved? Uh, so probably about three years ago, uh, after the show uh, had been optioned, uh, they were shopping it around. They wanted to. Is it not on? <coughs> Is that good? Yep. yep. There we go. Okay. Cool. So uh, 
Uh, as they were shopping the show around, uh, they wanted to do a storyboard test. Uh, the, the pilot had already been written, and uh, they just wanted to take kind of a two-minute chunk of that and just kind of board it out and try to get a look and feel uh, for how things were going to go. And uh, so I kind of stepped in, and the foundation was kind of already there in terms of uh, you know uh, the authenticity of the kung fu and wanting to bring in uh, Mexican and Chinese culture. So it was just kind of setting up the look, really, that uh, when I came in. And this was the first thing you directed, like, on this your is own, the, is that right? The, I was an animation director, uh, creative director at Powerhouse, but this is the first uh, TV show I directed. Was that, yeah. So what, what was that like? Was that, was that a, a scary thing? Was that, were, you, were you ready? <laughs> scary is not the word. Um, <laughs> it was, it, it, it was, it, um, it was a challenge, I will say that, like, uh, like anything, uh, just kind of stepping up to the plate. But um, it, uh, having directed other projects before, it was a similar process, just on a much, much bigger scale. So. Um, I'm curious in, in this process because in, in one way, like you're talking about, this was a hard thing to sell, but in other ways, you guys are already a, a well-oiled machine. You've already had successful shows on networks. You already have a, a, an animation studio uh, which is an interesting, I guess, intersection. Um, but uh, uh, Brad, I'm wondering uh, how you, I guess, like how your past experiences um, informed uh, how you're going to go about doing this. Like, what sort of instincts or, or lessons you learned from from Castlevania or from other other shows that you're like, okay, this is we're doing this this way, or we're going to make this teaser now, or it's important for us to have a score, or, or um, like, what sort of uh, a, how did you do this differently because of your past projects that maybe if you were doing it new, you would have maybe made some more mistakes? Yeah, it, so we, we made plenty of mistakes. Um, so uh, the thing is, like, and Al knows this because we were in the room together, like he said, we, we would go and we would pitch this tons of places. We, we pitched it to multiple networks and multiple streamers, and you'd get in there and you'd say, you know, we, we had animation examples with music, and we had a pilot, and we had all this other sort of stuff, but it was still a R-rated Mexican-led, uh, strong female lead sort of story. And so it was just it was such a unique project. And we knew that it was something that we really wanted to make, but it was also, there's not a lot of that sort of stuff out there. And so um, you, you keep pushing because of the people around you. Like, we have about 85 people at the studio. They're all, you know, we're all animation fans at the end of the day. And so I know that when it's the type of stuff that we want to watch, <clears throat> that it's the type of stuff that you know, should be out there and, and, and can get made, it's just convincing other people out there the same. But luckily, uh, the people at Viz and at Netflix, were, they, they saw that in the initial test and, and, and the project, and so we're able to get it out there pretty easily. But uh, not easily, but you know, we were able to get it eventually, out there because yeah. of them eventually. Um, but I mean, it's... Uh, it's, it's Action animation is, is difficult already um, when you have these type of culturals and you, uh, influences and you need that sort of authenticity. There's just a lot of research that has to be done. We got very lucky. There was a lot of synchronicity on the project. Um, the, the thing that Willis was talking about doing the animatic was this scene. Literally, I just wanted, you know, that moment from the old Kung Fu TV show where, you know, uh, Carradine kind of takes the brands on the two sides of the cauldron. It's an old show. A lot of you are young. Okay, there we go. <laughs> so anyway, like at the beginning of the series, he brands both of his arms on this big, giant uh, flaming cauldron. And I wanted that in the show. Um, 
for some other, you know, just to have that, that sort of tribute. Um, we were at a uh, Botanica in East Austin, and we walked in, and the first thing we saw is this big, giant cauldron on the floor. And uh, we asked the guy what, what that was uh, for. He's like, it's a naganga, which is what the Metamortis cult had all around uh, the place. And so we, we had a little bit of that in the script. And then we're just kind of chatting with him about it. He's like, yeah, you could trap the, the spirit of a witch in there. And that's what was in the pilot that Alvaro had written. And we, yeah, it was already, it not, not that that's what did it, not object-wise, but we had the story in place. And so, like, I don't know. I, I, there's, there's part of Seismanos to me that, you know, we got lucky a lot of turns. There were a lot of, you know, instances of synchronicity and just, like, the project kind of fell a lot of time into the right place. Um, I'm curious how, how you break the story, especially the writing team, I think is just two people. Yeah. And, and you, Brad. Um, what was that like, and how did that compare to maybe breaking From Dusk Till Dawn or, or the, the new show you're working on, Better well, Live you know, Action? Um, the other thing I would say, just before we get into that, about the, the synchronicity of the process is just that, you know, everything kind of comes in its time, and Castlevania managed to kick open a door mm. for for us as giving us the opportunity to do Seismanus because Castlevania was kind of a test. The first season was four episodes. And uh, so it wasn't a, a huge investment. It wasn't eight or 12 episodes. It was, a, it was a test with four. And I think even Netflix would say they were surprised by how well it performed. It was not just one of the top watched animated series on Netflix. It was one of the top watched series of any kind on Netflix. And so now this idea of doing adult genre-based, action-oriented, non-comedic animation was like, okay, this is possible now. This has been, the test has been passed, and so we need to get into that door. Um, to the idea of like breaking story, uh, I'm a structure guy. I'm a, I, I hope to think that I'm good at like figuring story out. And like when I, working with Daniel Dominguez is my writing partner on Seis Manos, it was just us two in the room, and we were, constantly kind of challenging each other and like kicking each other's ideas and beating each other's ideas up and tearing each other's ideas down <laughs> because that's the way good story comes from. You know, it, it really was like uh, sometimes a knockdown, you know, drag out, knock out teeth kind of fight. Because it, was, it was really fun to watch. It was, <laughs> because that's, uh, you know, it's like my whole aesthetic or my whole um, intention in going into any writing room is like, I want to bring my best ideas to the table because I want you to rip them apart and tear them apart. And because when you bring your ideas to the table, I want to do the same thing with you and together we will you know, build a better monster. And um, so that was, the, that was the process. And I think I learned a lot of that working with the showrunner uh, from Dusk Till Dawn. You know, one of his big mottos was like, trust the process and just like, you know, don't get ahead of yourself. Just get through and work things out and work out your story and work out your characters. And, all of that stuff. And then to just to the, the synchronicity too, we met with Viz Media after having all these other rejections and Viz just like, they loved the idea. They said, we want this to be our first original animated project. Viz is the largest distributors of anime and manga in the US, but it's all exclusively Japanese material, you know, Naruto and Pokemon and Dragon Ball and things like that. Um, and then together with Viz, we went to Netflix and Netflix said, Yes, and they're really, they're, they're, two big things came out of that Netflix meeting. One was, you need more women characters on this show. 
the original character of Officer Garcia, who was voiced by the actress Angelica Valle from Mexico, was a male character, an older male character. And just when they said, you know, you need another female character on the show, it's like instead of adding a new character, it was just like, well, of course that makes so much sense. This is Officer Garcia. And then we got to explore ideas about, you know, she's the first female police officer in this area and all of this stuff because the story takes place in the 70s. And, um, and then Netflix also said, don't try to do something in the show for everybody. Don't do something where you feel like, okay, this is going to appeal to a 13-year-old you know, from Iowa. This is going to appeal to you know, a 24-year-old. Just, like, just do your show and be as authentic to your material as possible because that's the thing that's going to make it universal. So those things were like incredibly liberating and freeing and inspiring in the writing and breaking down of the show. You were talking about uh, fighting in, in the writer's room. Do you remember any specific scenes or ideas or moments that you were really fighting for or against that ended up working really well? Um, all of my ideas won. <laughs> uh, well, I'm trying to think of uh, something that's like super specific to... Because we also, we've, we've already actually written our second season, so that's kind of more fresh in my mind. Oh. We're hoping to find out soon if we'll actually get to produce the second season, um, but hoping for more synchronicity on that. Um, you know, it, it, it's any, anything from, like, character beats, like what a character would do or say, there was definitely um, things that involved, like, how much you had to explain something and how much you could just like let the audience catch up to it feels like you know daniel was much more well versed in the in the world of anime than i was and he's just like no this is a trope in anime it's like people talk about the thing that they're talking about it's, there's no like subtext it's just people talking about the thing and you know i like i said i didn't come from that space so it was much more of like let's leave some ellipses here that people could kind of like put their own spin on without having to say things that much. So, you know, there were things like that where we would find a compromise and find a way to do it um, that worked for both of us. And how much, I guess um, this is for you too, Willis, is, is when you're breaking the story, um, is there any meeting going on? Like, do you, are you bringing in art from the beginning? Do you know what the characters are looking like or is that a later phase? I, I mean, at the end of the day, um, scripts come first and then you do all the records and then you go into animation. Like the, the only reason, the only show that really has voice that's done, you know, after animation is Popeye, which is why it's off, it's off you know, uh, lip sync, you know. They're just kind of mumbling and talking because they did the animation first and then they brought the actors in and they would watch the cartoon like Robin Williams and Mrs. Doubtfire and, and do the stuff to it. But, of course, we have to animate to the acting, we have to animate to the timing of the way that they talk and all that other sort of stuff. So, generally speaking, you, you need to have the scripts first, then you get the actors' records, then you move on to storyboards, uh, and, yeah. then, and then you go from there. So, um, it, it, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, with all production, you're kind of like running against the clock and trying to make a whole bunch of stuff happen. But you do get to make changes as mm -hmm. things go along. Like, yeah. for instance, when Al, Dan, and I were uh, in the records, there'd be a lot of times where it's like, uh, oh, crap, this, this would be better this way. And we would actually rewrite while they're in there recording the old line, we'd re be rewriting lines in the room, and then we would run in there with a sheet of paper and get them to, to do a different read. And then 
sometimes we get multiple takes on stuff and then the board artists had some little idea that they would put inside of there and, and shift stuff up and, or maybe retime it to be in a different order or something like that. But animation is a, it's a fairly you know, processed, iterative art form. So you kind of have to go in the regular steps or you know, things will go haywire. Yeah, when we would start on uh, storyboards, we generally start really, really rough because uh, we have, you know, a version of the script to maybe start thumbnailing some stuff, but that was, you know, as people were being cast and final VO was being recorded. So sometimes we'd go into uh, our booth and do scratch audio just to kind of start getting some of the timing down on some things. But again, you want to stay really rough because as far as the acting goes on some of the characters, we don't have the final. So we just kind of have general posing. And then once we would get the, the uh, final VO in, then you start to really flesh things out. Because it may completely change how you want to stage or uh, stage a scene, depending on the acting. So. Yeah, and a lot of time the actors will experiment with the line, like and read it like four or five different ways. And you know, if, if you board it beforehand and you have them like being really over the top and all mm -hmm. of that, and then the quiet read is the one that really works and sells the scene, you would have to go back and redo all that. So. Yeah. yeah. But there seems to be an, uh, an advantage or a luxury, maybe that's the wrong word, in, in writing for animation, which is that you, you, you can write anything you want. When you're drawing it, you can draw whatever you want. There, there is more freedom in, in changing it. You're not necessarily doing reshoots. You're just, you can draw something in space if you want. You can draw something wherever right. in a way that you can't do with live action. So I'm wondering... Uh, what, what, what it's like to play in that playground, but also are there limitations that you don't experience in live action when trying to write an animated show? I mean, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that people always talk about when you're like, you pitch a project as an animated project, a lot of times the question you get is like, why is this animated? Why can't this be a live action show? And, um, and I don't know if there's necessarily a good answer for why does Seis Manos have to be animated because that's what it was always you know, intended to be. But even in the animated space, it was very freeing because we have elements in the show that kind of exist in, let's say, an alternate or altered reality. You know, we have a thing called the empty place, which is like this when someone goes into this meditative state and is able to be with another character in this strange space. Or a, a, a similar sequence where um, a character takes hallucinogenic magic mushrooms and goes into the same kind of a thing. And so you can imagine like what that would cost in a movie, you know, compared to the amazing art that, that you can do in the animated space for something like that. So it was, yeah, it was completely freeing. It was like um, a feeling like you could, do, you could do a lot of different things and it was all coming from the characters, all coming from the story, but you weren't limited by saying like, you know, we can't, we really can't blow up 20 cars. You know, we can only blow up two cars because we only have the budget for two cars. We blew up 20 cars. Yeah. 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 Um, I want to talk more about writing, but I also want to bring this into uh, selling and, and how you do this make this possible. I know people here want to make animation, so I'm, I am more curious about, um, in addition to writing, how you get this made and how you get people on board. Can you talk about the, the interaction and relationship with Netflix? And, and um, I'm, well, here's the question is, when you're going to pitch, Netflix or whoever, what do you bring with you? How much is already done for Seis Manos or for Castlevania or for anything normally? Do you have things animated already? Do you, already, do you just have scripts? Do you just have a pitch? Um, what makes a good animated pitch for a, a bigger studio? 
It's a great question, and it's different for every project. Like, as a for instance, uh, the Castlevania project, which is you know Frederator Studios project. Um, uh, producer over there had bought the rights to the the video game, specifically the the third game, and uh, they were going to do a direct to video uh, film back when people were still making animated Blu-ray films, and so uh, they wrote a movie basically, and then. Uh, that market completely died. And so then Netflix came around and we're doing non-standard episode counts. And so the producer over there was like, we've got four episodes. It was a film, but they broke it up into four, four 22-minute shot pieces. And they were like, Let's, what would this look like? And they're like, well, that's not a big buy-in. Let's do, yeah, four episodes of Castlevania. It's a very well-known property. And uh, the art looks cool, and Warren Ellis is an amazing writer, and so that's kind of what allowed that to happen. We did have designs, we did have a pitch deck. The scripts were there because they had written the film. Um, Seis Manos was a little bit more of a, a, a harder sell, you know. It's a it's a very very unique uh, genre based uh, project. By the time we went in, we had recorded Danny Trejo doing uh, the opening scene of the, the the film. We had a full animatic of that. We had one minute of animation just showing the style of how it could be produced. We had the pilot, we had a song. There was a 60-page fight choreography deck that talked about what each style of kung fu for each person would be. I mean, it was, it was pretty well, you know, figured out by then. And like Al said, it also evolved a lot after that. And so, like, I mean, there was quite a lot that we brought in, and depending upon which kind of show you're, you're out there looking to pitch, because he and I have been out there pitching other stuff since, um, sometimes you'll go in and it's just the kernel of an idea and you just kind of strike you know, lightning and people are like, all right, yeah, let's, let's, let's figure this out and move forward. Um, other times it took five years of selling to, to get yeah. Seis out. I mean, you had a lot with you. When did you know you were ready to go to pitch, or were there points where like, no, 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 now we need we need to have this booklet, or it would be great if we could have a score? Or, like, did you have a sense where you're like, okay, this is we're at the point now? Yeah, I, I, I don't. I personally don't have that kind of patience, and uh-huh. so like, I, we pitch it every at every point along the way, and then I would hear what somebody said in the room and be like, yeah, if you could get somebody like Trejo, then like, yeah, this thing could Let's definitely Trejo. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. And then yeah. it's like. You know, luckily his uh, his manager is originally from Austin, and so <laughs> he started doing some phone calls and trying to figure it out. Al wrote Machete, and so we we're able to bring him in and do a record with just him and kind of make it look that much more. Willis did the animatic, you know. So, like, I, my my theory always was like, I I think I pitched it with an initial deck, and then we probably pitched it another two hundred times. Every time we pitched it, we added something else. Yeah. I think there's also a thing too about. I guess this goes back to the idea of synchronicity and like the zeitgeist. You know, Castlevania was existing IP, so there was a there was a risk taken with that that isn't the same risk as doing a completely original project. We happened to hit Netflix at a time where they were like, okay, we're not so much looking for IP, we're looking for new things to develop. So that was also a really fortunate time that we came in at that time because these this is a pendulum that swings back and forth. You know, the market says sometimes, well, we only want to do stuff that we've sold before and we can sell again. And then sometimes they're like, okay, we're willing to take a risk on some new ideas. And, um, and we just happen to, to, to find them at exactly the right moment, too. And I imagine that aligns with representation as well. I, um, 
I'm curious. I mean, this is a show with virtually no white people in it. Was that was that part of the synchronicity, or was that a problem? Was that a hard thing for you guys to sell? I think it was part of the synchronicity in that you know that was again part of its intention, part of its identity, part of its DNA was that this was going to be a show set in a 1970s Mexico, even in a fantastical kind of sense. But it is about you know these three orphans who were orphaned during the beginning of cartel violence in Mexico in the 1970s and raised by a Chinese exile who teaches them varying forms of kung fu. And then when he meets a sad end, they go up against the drug cartel uh, who is led by a uh, bad guy who is using black magic to, to uh, operate his cartel. And you can see why it was such a hard thing. <laughs> like, especially before Castlevania, before there was adult American-made animation. And younger people, a lot of you here already know this, like anime broke down all these barriers a long time ago. Yeah. But convincing people in the States that this had happened and it's not a niche and all of that other sort of stuff, it's, it's very difficult. And when Al and I would go in a room and we'd be excited and we'd be like, yeah, and cartel violence, and like all this other sort of stuff, and people would be like, yeah, that's a, but no. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Well, I started like pitching it as Machete meets Kill Bill on the set of Coco. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, diving more into representation, because I think that plays a very clear role and a clear, uh, priority for you guys. What was that process like of authenticity and respect of those cultures, but also balancing it with story? It was all research, and it was all like, you know, there's so much stuff. I've always been a big proponent of smuggling as a writer and as someone who, you know, is trying to do creative stuff, and I felt like this was an opportunity to smuggle in all kinds of things. Yeah. Smuggling representation, the very fact that there is one, I guess technically in the first episode, the wife of the only white character yeah. um, on the show, um, Larry, the CIA, or the uh, DEA um, boss. Um, and everyone else is a person of color, you know? Everyone else is either, you know, Chinese, African-American, or Mexican. And, um, and so even that was sort of subversive in its own way. And it's like saying, we are, this is intentional, this is purposeful. But not in a way where it was like uh, necessarily preachy or trying to wear itself on its sleeve, but in a way where it's just like, we're just going to do this and see if anybody kind of notices there's only one white guy on the show. Um, and uh, yeah, so representation really mattered and trying to be as authentic to the, uh, the subject matter, the things that we did, the references to, to, to things that we, even as writers, Daniel and I did a lot of research into um, like the way we perceive these characters and looking to, um, looking to film. I'm a big Mexican film fan, especially from what they call the golden age of Mexican cinema. So drawing influences from there to think about some of these characters and even the setting of, of the show and, and looking to, um, you know, the Chinese. Uh, one thing Brad did for us at the beginning was giving us all copies of the Tao Te Ching on audio to listen to it. And so that was like a, you know, that informed so much of who this character was, the, their mentor character, the Sifu named Chu in the show. And like giving that a certain authenticity. We met and met with a Taoist priest in, uh, in Burbank because you can find anything in Burbank, <laughs> California. 
and uh, and talked through um, you know uh, sort of the philosophy uh, how a, how a person who uh, you know ascribes to these tenets deals with death how a person you know would deal with um, loss and all of these things and how that's understood in a way that you know we wouldn't normally have access to because of our own backgrounds and so it was like you know and yet this is a show about a cartel and violence and craziness and all that stuff but rooted in in some kind of authenticity and reality that yeah. made it why I wanted to do it um, and I, I one of the parts I liked a lot was the Mexican mysticism that you really did delve into what was that research like and were there any specific examples of story or uh, just like the visuals that kind of came from the research? Uh, as far as uh, uh, visuals go, yes. Uh, uh, with all of the research uh, that we did, like you said, going to the, uh, the botanical here in Austin, we tried to put as much of that as we could into, into the show. In uh, Garabina's shack, the, uh, that whole layout is pretty much a ripoff of the green and white grocery store uh, here in Austin. We just kind of, there was so many details to pull from that we just, you know, we put it in the show. And we tried to do that as much as we could in all the backgrounds and even in some of the, uh, the character designs. Just, uh, speaking on authenticity, just trying to get that look and feel from the 70s as much as we could. So. Um, yeah, it's really cool. It was, it was like a different world, but still felt yeah. um, authentic. Yeah, um, even in that so Garabina character is a Curandera character, sort of the healing woman character, and um, and so there's a there's a uh, sort of I don't know spell is the right word, but she's trying to give this other character information about what is going on in the town, and and she gets her to lie down on this platform, and then scrapes dried mud from the bottom of her shoes into a coffee can, and lights it, and you know kind of does this little ritual in which she's able to you know, have a vision of what is happening. She also takes hallucinogenic mushrooms. And so even that character is based on a real curandera woman from, I guess, the 1960s. And uh, there's this kind of incantation that she does that was based on the same, you know, so it was like all of this was really trying to draw on all of these things in a very specific way, but hopefully not in a way that said, like, that made it dry or, um, you know, seem forced into it. it. It was hopefully felt like a natural part of it. Yeah, there was, I mean, it was something that Netflix said to us in the initial pitch was like, you know, make sure that we would keep bringing things like these up. And they were like, that specificity, that keep chasing that specificity, find that authenticity. And it became almost like uh, excited kids uh, at a show and tell, you know? Because like, we were all doing research. We were all trying to talk about these things. We were looking into... You know, everything from Nagangas to black exploitation films to how this character kills that character, all of that other sort of stuff. And, you know, I, there's this one bit in the trailer that's even out there where guys, you know, we break open his sternum and then it like fuses back together. And that, that the, everything from the grab is from one old kung fu movie to the breaking of the sternums from another one to the magic that makes it happen is founded in some mysticism. And so, like, it, it, it was, it was such a fun process and sharing all this stuff that we just constantly were excited about. We knew we were on the right track. Yeah. And, and, oh, go ahead. I was just saying, we were like the Goonies. We were, this was our little, <laughs> you know, going on the treasure hunt and finding all these things and sharing these things. Like, this is the clue that's going to get us to that thing, you know? When I really... uh, and Brad, so you've been doing martial arts for a while, and this is, seems to be, in some ways, a world that you've inhabited 
or at least have been a fan of or, or followed for a while. How did your experience training in that or just living in that world uh, inform, or did you have sort of some sort of a compass because of, because of your own experiences? Yeah, and for, for sure. Like, a lot of the themes in the show that Al and I initially talked about even before getting to the pilot are, are generally martial arts-type themes, like, you know, violence as a justification, revenge, all of those types of things, and especially in terms of Taoism and how that kind of uh, how that kind of blends, where you're, you're studying all, all of these violent things and love watching these fights and all this violent stuff, when at the end of the day, that's not what martial arts is really about. And so there's that thread underneath Seis Manos with all that. But on top of that, we, we worked for the animation. We worked with a, a local Sifu here, uh, a fellow I trained with, and uh, we brought him in every time we did a fight choreography, uh, every time we did a fight scene. We would get and film all of it. We would walk it through with the storyboard artists. Uh, you know, we would ask questions about why and what the motivation of the story was at that point. And, you know, try to get that into the uh, the kung fu of it all too. So like, there's there's a lot of lot of that there. But at the end of the day, I think it's the excitement that came from what other people were bringing too. Because you know, um, you know, Daniel brought a lot of anime knowledge. Al brought this great cinema knowledge, all this folkloric knowledge. And it, it, when we would start talking about that stuff and kind of how to merge the worlds, that's when it really got exciting. Um, I do want to talk more about the choreography because I find the concept of animated choreography interesting and sounds more challenging than like. You know the behind the scenes we might see of a John Wick, where you see like the actors learning it. This is not that. This is you have to train animators how to do kung fu in a way so they can draw. Like there's a lot more layers. It sounds like there's a lot of obstacles in doing that. Was that hard? How how did you it, it approach was, it? It was definitely the most terrifying thing <laughs> in the entire production to me because like I did not know whether we could pull it off or not. I knew, I knew our team, we've been, we've been around for 18 years, and we're known for doing fight choreography stuff, but when you're trying to do authentic and legit, and there's people who practice these arts for decades watching your show, you know, there, there, you're, there's a little bit of trepidation. But everybody really took to it. Mm-hmm. Like, we, I mean, we would bring the Sifu into the office, we would look at the script, uh, we would talk about the motivation of the story, then we would go through the entire sequence and just let him do what he would do. And he acted, so he, it, out. He acted yeah. it out. He's yeah. like, and this guy's going to punch from this direction. What makes sense? And then he'd be like, and then he would kind of, kind of figure it out from there. Yeah. And we, we'd looked at a lot, a lot of reference beforehand and like we're trying to figure out where we could spill in from uh, some of the films and things like that. Yeah. But then the storyboard artists would like get into it and then like grab a hand and like what I would love to see this from this angle and he'd be like well make sure you turn your foot this way because that's how you're going to get the ability to turn this person over and it became this incredibly collaborative thing at the end of the day animators are you know working at 24ths of a second to slowly time out movement and there's just such a commonality between that and what martial artists do because it's like this slight change in your wrist or your ankle and how you set it down leads to this next thing and that's how animators think mm-hmm. and so that for it just it really did click and everybody was trying very hard the thing is when you're when you're writing this sort of content in animation like you said earlier you could do anything and so in the show we had to kind of ramp that up because we wanted to establish that foundation that this is a martial arts show 
So like in those first few episodes, every once in a while, Daniel or somebody would be like, and then he flies into the air and then he like hits five bullets back and we're like, no, not yet. Like we, we want to get there, but we want to make sure we, you know, fool the audience into thinking this is an animation, that these are people doing legit kung fu, and then we could kind of ramp that up a little by little across the course of the series. Yeah, even a lot of the storyboarders tried to pull some of that stuff at first. And some of those early boards and episodes, they'd be like, and then this character gets hit and they explode, and it's like, not, nah, no, <laughs> just bring it back. Maybe they just get bruised and yeah. they fall down. So There's a really cool sequence in one of the episodes where uh, they do this thing called chisal, yeah. which is like this blindfolded form of fighting um, and uh, to like teach you how to fight when you can't see your opponent and you're kind of fighting with your other senses. And then that becomes a thing where the two characters are actually start fighting on top of these poles that are varying lengths. And so that became like this, you know, a really cool idea for a sequence that as you're writing it, you know, just like any fight, Part of it is the intensity of the fight choreography, but it's like, why is it important to that scene? There's something else that's happening rather than just the fight itself. The fight is illustrative of, you know, something that the characters are experiencing almost in a metaphorical way. You know, there's a lesson being imparted here. There's something that we're getting at. One of our characters, one of our main characters is named Silencio, and he's a mute in the show. And so that was also just, on its face, a kind of absurd notion that you would do an animated series with a lead character who cannot speak. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so that, having that character be also now blindfolded, you know, there's like, and it's a cool sequence, it's a cool action sequence, but there's also this story that's being told behind it, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, and that one specifically is something that you'd have to communicate across all the animators and storyboard artists because at the end of the day, Chisau is... You know, you're, you're touching the person and you're being led by making sure you keep that contact and following them and, you know, either putting pressure or not putting pressure based on what's happening. And so um, animators would sometimes not, without, if they didn't know what was going on, they would have the two people disconnect and then follow each other. And so you would lose the whole point of what the story was trying to tell or, you know, what the actual martial arts meaning is behind all of it. And so that was one where we, we uh, when some of the in-betweens came back from Korea, mm -hmm. there, there's this thing where it looks like they're just playing patty cake way back on the back wall. Yeah. Yeah. And you saw it back there, and it was a scene that we had to completely redo in-house before completing the episode because it, it just doesn't work. And then uh, you want to keep the choreography authentic, but you're also still... At the, as it goes along, making it more supernatural. And they're dealing with uh, floating swords or they're dealing with superhuman strength that it can throw buses around. How, how do you work with the Sifu on that? Like You're like, well, how would you authentically <laughs> defeat a floating sword that moves on its own? Like was, was the Sifu on board with that? How does that work? Luckily, he's also a big Shaw Brothers fan. And so like at the end of the day, you would get... You'd, and and it, was, it truly was when we were working on the outlines and the scripts, it was like until you got to episode seven and eight, it was like, no, no, not yet, not yet. And then like in seven and eight, it's like, go for it. Go for it. You know, like do whatever you want to do. But like the thing is the, you know, the, the source material, there's so much fantastical wuxia sort of stuff that's out there inside the genre, inside of both anime and, you know, old martial arts films that we 
all of it's kind of grounded in a way too, even though it's giant people cutting bullets in half and stuff like that. Um, well, let's talk about the violence because, my God, this show is so violent um, in a way that's that's awesome. But also, I'm like, wow, I can't believe someone made this. Was that was that hard? Were, was there a line that you guys were trying to find or trying to cross when when showing that kind of level of gore? Well, you know, there's a thing too. I think any writer that has worked on something and then actually had it produced experiences where it's like all of a sudden this thing that was just the idea in your head or the voice in your head, you're now seeing it visualized in some way. And you either have the experience of like, wow, this is so much better than what I thought or so much different than what I thought or not what I thought at all. And there was definitely that element in, you know, from having written the scripts to then watching the, you know, the final version of the thing. And it was like, you know, it's, it, it, it just was a testament to me of, of, uh, of the incredible skill set uh, that, that comes from the animators, that comes from Willis and comes from all of the, the character, you know, the, the guys that are doing the animation because they're bringing something, they're bringing themselves to it in a way that if I wrote out every specific thing, that would be a 200-page script mm-hmm. because there's so much that they do with, with uh, that is completely visual that, that you don't want to waste words on, on saying and allow them the, the latitude to do these things and just be impressed by that. Uh, by that experience. So, um, yeah, sometimes the violence in the show, you know, is both, I guess, shocking in, in that, in the sort of violences of it, the, the, the gore of it, but in other ways, it's like, it's so well done and so well choreographed. Sometimes it really feels like this, you know, ballet of blood. And it is, uh, and that's something that is, as a writer, when you're sitting there, sometimes it's not so much something that you even had in your mind. There was an, a, a, you know, a, an experience I had watching some of the stuff that was coming back, and, and as Brad would, as they were doing sound mixes and stuff, Brad would be filming the monitor and then sending us clips of you know how things were coming out. And I remember watching this one episode and thinking like. Um, fucking Daniel got this really fucking great episode and he did this great thing in the thing and not realizing that it was in my episode, I'd completely forgotten having written it <laughs> just because it was so different from what I remembered having done. And, or it's just like, it, it was so new in a, in a way where it was like, wow, I didn't remember even having written that scene. And it's nothing that's great about the writing. It's just about how well executed all of these action beats were and how beautiful the whole thing looked. And it's just, it's an almost out-of-body experience, I think, sometimes writing for animation because you, you know, these are just words on a page to you. And even in all the research and all the stuff and even seeing the drawings and all this stuff, when it finally comes together, it just feels like, you know, the work of so many people. Yeah. Um, I mean, it still is, like, pretty intense and pretty hard for some people to watch. Were there moments you had to pull back or moments where like Netflix or, or Viz or anyone was like, maybe we should not do that? No, not that, no not, there were no moments like that. There, there were moments when you're just in the middle of a Tuesday that's a work day and you're getting coffee and you walk by. We have this amazing uh, character artist. Her, her name is Dews. 
And uh, she has this very extreme sunny disposition, but she's also the person who did all the model sheets for all the severed heads and inside of bodies and guts <laughs> hanging out and all that stuff. And so yeah. it'd be a Tuesday and you're just at work that day and you like walk by and you're like, hey, dude, how's it going? She's like, oh, it's going great. And then you look at her monitor and there's like a head that's got like, cut off from here to here. <laughs> and she has some research where she's looking at what the underside of the interior of a head would look like. And you're all just smiling and you're working at an animation studio. You know, it's just, and you're like, oh yeah, yeah. that's in yeah. the script. There you go. Um, but uh, it, it, what's funny is like, uh, it, it gets called out a lot, but uh, the, the the amount of uh, violence that in it. But, that's, from a Western animation standpoint, that's it's it's fairly uncommon to see that sort of stuff. But you know they've been experimenting and doing amazing things in, in anime for a long time, and our artists have grown up with that uh, genre of art and all that other sort of stuff. It's kind of you know I might have been raised on Looney Tunes and Disney films, but they they came up more inside of the anime space, and so it's not even that too much of a stretch, you know? Some of our shows, even with the dead babies and the severed heads and the open chests and all that stuff, are pretty tame comparatively to a lot of stuff that's out there. Yeah, it's one of those things where I, 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 for, I guess I forget how violent the show is perceived, because I don't think it's that violent at all, which is probably telling about myself. But uh, it, yeah, it was just, it was one of those things. I wanted to try, I always, thought of approaching the violence in the show was like if, if I wanted to make it as though it was created in the 70s, so I saw it as like 70s movie set gore. So it was like we, we tried to brighten up the, the red of the blood as much as we could, but then it would get, you know, crushed by the saturation in post, so it ended up just looking like regular blood. And uh, 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 as Brad was saying, with the, the artists, they were just so talented in how they would create these designs that it was it, there's no way that it could look fake because they just made it look so real and so you just kind of go with it you're like oh okay that's that's a severed head fine moving on those are intestines moving on and you it I just became numb to the whole thing I guess so I don't I never I still don't think it's that violent <laughs> okay. well I hope you guys are okay um, <laughs> probably not <laughs> um, uh, outside of representation and and all the things we're talking about, I think character is probably the core of this. Or that's I don't think anything would work without that. And I imagine that was a priority for you guys from the beginning. Um, how did you birth all these characters? You kind of talked about um, Angela Cavalli's character in Silencio, but um, was it always like these these three and along with the the, the two police officers or or, or um, can you just talk about the, the birth of these characters and how they evolved. Well, I mean, each of the characters, in a, you know, the, we have these three orphans that, that form this sort of surrogate family with their surrogate father, Chu, you know. But they're not actually brother and sister. But, but by, by this sort of foster family, you know, you have one who is the, the meditative one, one who's the thinker, one who, like, tries to be the rational one and try to figure out how do I, how does this work? How do I do this? And, and showing that process for her as a way of illustrating that's her personality. She's the thinker. She's the, in some ways, she's um, just like the, that very uh, specific, like wanting to know the rules of the ritual, wanting to know, like, how does this work? How can I make this work? And then Jesus is like the, you know, some people might call him like the lovable oaf character, but he's really kind of like the emotional one. Mm -hmm. He is the most emotional of all the three characters. Um, but he's, he, um, 
has the most heart of all the three characters. He also sort of the one who beats himself up the most of all the three characters. And then Silencio is the one who is mute, but has this intense rage inside him that he sometimes can contain and other times not. And so even on that sort of like basic understanding of, of these characters, may not have been apparent in the beginning when we first worked on the project and, you know, wasn't thinking in those terms, but because of just like getting into that space and writing those characters, they revealed themselves to us, I think. You know, certainly more and more as we were writing it and even as we were writing the second season, it's sort of like charting their growth, charting their journeys on an emotional level rather than just on a plot level. Like this happens and this happens and this happens. It's like this happens, but how does it affect that character and how does that character respond to these things? Um, uh, so yeah, it, it, that was, it, it, it's, there's still something that's very strange to me about like talking about this show in those terms because on the surface it seems to be something else that, that maybe doesn't have that kind of attention paid to character, but that was always part of it for me. And so, you know, um, there was a lot to, to do with, with that. I mean, in a way, the amount of time it took us to pitch and sell the show, the way that it organic, organically evolved over that was to the great benefit of the show. Like, he and I had a Google Doc that we passed back and forth that was just about theme. And every time something would come up, he'd see a film or I'd, you know, a, a, some, something happened Saturday in Kung Fu that we talked about. You know, we would put that sort of stuff inside the theme deck. And by the time we got around to writing the show, there were pages upon pages about not just the motivation of the character and why this character is this way, but how that fit into the overall th theme and why they do this style of kung fu and why that's fitting for their specific character. I mean, it gave us the opportunity. We loved the idea. And so over you know, the few years that we were out there talking about it, it, it kept growing, it kept evolving. And I would just want to say too, because I'd forgotten about that, and that was, you know, in terms of like writing for animation and being creative and being collaborative with other people, I think, you know, in full honesty, there was a moment where I was like concerned that, um, that you were mad at, at me because I had written in that document, like, none of this makes any fucking sense at all. <laughs> And I was just like, because I was, I was reading through the document and I was like trying to get into it and it was like there was something that wasn't landing for me. And, you know, just just part of the thing, like I said, about bringing in the ideas and tearing them down, where I just was like challenging this stuff. And I think I did it in such a way that like Brad was like, is everything okay? It's like, do you not like this project anymore? And I said, no, it's just like I have to work through it this way. We have to like be honest with ourselves and keep trying to challenge ourselves to like make this thing really connect and really sync and be the best that, that we can make it. Yeah. And, and working with Al, who's a genius, by the way, has uh, been like such a learning experience for me because one, you know, we want to do these things, these types of shows that have this representation and this diversity because I, I love learning and seeing all these things. And when I want to watch and engage in a show, I want to learn about a different culture, learn about you know, my friends and peers and all that other sort of stuff. But uh, animation is a very team sport. 
Um, you know, we're, there's usually like all these different people involved in it. And being honest, when him and Dan are in the room and I'm sitting in the corner and they've got all the, you know, the, the index cards up there and uh, Dan will be like, bad pitch, yeah, X, Y, and Z. And Al will be like, that's dumb. I'm like, oh no, it's all falling apart. <laughs> we're going to break up soon. Um, but it actually, I, I learned so much just watching them you know, in the, in, the, in the course of an hour, like, beat down each other's ideas, then find that kernel of truth, that kernel of interest underneath all of that, and then hug it out an hour and a half later, and then all of a sudden that becomes the thing that, you know, is such a kernel of that episode or such a thread of the show. And uh, there's, there's power in that confrontation um, and, and all that sort of stuff. It was, it was fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, you're talking about growing these characters from, I guess, like what might start, start off seeming like stark, stock characters like what are the serious one or the comic relief and building more into them. Um, how does that translate into story? Like, do, does your story evolve because, like when you give Jesus a, an addiction issue, does that, does that influence the story or, or does that come from the story? Is it interchangeable? It's a little bit of both because, you know, one of the things that we kind of started out with was that each of these characters had different fighting styles. And Jesus' fighting style is sort of this drunken boxing style, mm. you know, that people might know from, like, the Jackie Chan movies of Drunken Master and Sammo Hung and other kinds of things. But so it seemed like, okay, so he's got a problem with alcohol. And so that became, like, part of, you know, where a physical thing manifested itself in an emotional way and vice versa. And you could use that to to to, to uh, explore the, how the character dealt with sadness or depression or like having his trying to keep his surrogate family together and all of these things, and um, and how he both falls into the trap of his addiction and then climbs out of the trap of his addiction. Um, so I, I think both things end up kind of informing each other in some way, and then you find, you find the rhythm that the story needs to go into. Um, and I guess moving forward now that you are, I guess you wrote season two or writing season two, what lessons did you learn from this, this big uphill battle and selling it and, and, and getting it made that you've applied or are going to start applying um, moving forward? That's a good question. <laughs> uh... One thing that I think I've learned is to, to, to trust the process and just not be so worried about everything on, on a level. It's something that's, that's new and out there. And so speaking of, you know, Jesus is drinking. We were like, what, how is that going to be perceived? Mm. Like, is that going to be something that, that's an issue? And we all agreed that it wasn't and we, we, we moved forward. But, you know, I think we've learned to trust the instincts, trust the process, do all the research that you need to do. Um, but, you know, not necessarily be writing it for anybody, but to the characters and what the stories are. It's, it's, animation takes so long, like it, all production does, but animation takes specifically a very long time, especially 2D animation. And to me, it's very, uh, I'm trying to think of a good real world example that makes sense to share this. Um, when we go and do press with the voice actors now, is very, very strange for me because those are the voices of the characters to me. And so we'll be at dinner with Angelica or Johnny Cruz or one of these people and they're talking to you and the whole time in my head I'm like, 
that's not him. <laughs> and they're super nice people. And I'm like, that's Jesus's voice. That's not you. Um, because you live with it on a day-to-day basis, watching these scenes go from storyboards to thumbnails to animatics to animation to in-betweens. And they just, they become these characters. And like, it's, it's I don't, you know, it's hard to think of them like, we, we worked on it for so long, like, I feel like we have a conversation about what would Jesus do because we know who Jesus is. And it, it, it's more about that than anything else, if that makes sense. I mean, to me, I think the lesson that I've taken away from Seis Manos is actually, like, a very inspiring one, which is this is a show that never should have existed. This is a show that is, is you know, uh, voiced and... Uh, and all these characters are basically people of color. It was, uh, you know, created by myself, a gay Latino, and Brad, and directed by Willis. And this show should not exist. You know, this is a this is an anomaly in some way, and yet it it is there. And so, anybody that wants to make animation, anybody that wants to do anything creative, recognize that there is no better time in the history of the world than right now. The demand for content is greater than it's ever been. The opportunities are more than they've ever been simply because there are so many new platforms, so many new services that all need material. And they can do the lazy thing and just like, you know, um, lease and rerun Miami Vice or Starsky and Hutch. But that helps us not much. There's your Apples and your Quibbies and your Amazons and your Hulus and your Netflixes and, and all the networks and all the cable, they're looking for material. If you believe in your stuff, do it. Just, like, get it out there. Do one, write that script, get it to someone uh, who either will give you feedback or get it to the next person, and while that's happening, write something else. And just, like, but recognize that the opportunities now for everybody, not to mention just you know, people of color, you know, uh, minorities, women, people who've been generally underrepresented in the creative space in a way, right now, this is it. This is the time. Um, for us with our adult, non-comedic, action-oriented genre animated show, a door opened and we tried to step into that door. And it felt, it feels like, you know, this is a door that we are trying to keep open as long as possible. We are trying to get in other shows into these spaces, not just with Netflix, but with other people too. And we have made great relationships along the way. We've made great partners along the way. And it feels like, uh, in a way, that this is all possible, in a way when I didn't feel that before. Um, there was a lot of times where I felt like this is, so, this is like the hardest thing in the world to do because no one is going to give you that shot. And right now, the shot is there for you to take. So that's my takeaway from this experience. Austin Film Festival's script and film competitions are currently accepting submissions. All script entrants receive free readers' comments, and advancing writers will be afforded exclusive panels, workshops, and networking opportunities at Austin Film Festival's annual writers' conference each October. For more information on badges, passes, and to submit, visit www.austinfilmfestival.com. Looking for more resources? Check out austinfilmfestival.com for more audio, streaming suggestions, writing prompts, and more. 
On Story is brought to you in part by the Alice Kleberg Reynolds Foundation, a Texas family providing innovative funding since 1979. This project is supported in part by the Cultural Arts Division of the City of Austin Economic Development Department, the Texas Commission on the Arts, the U.S. Institute of Museum and Library Sciences, and Texas Library and Archives Commission. This program is also made possible in part by a grant from Humanities Texas, the state affiliate for the National Endowment for the Humanities. The show is produced by myself, Barbara Morgan. Our associate producers are Colin Heyer, Maya Perez, and Katie Turner. Our editors are Jamal Knox and Travis Neely. Audio capture by Travis Kennedy. Music is by Brian Ramos. Production assistance comes from Travis Kennedy and the Sound Lab, Inc. in Austin, Texas. Go to austinfilmfestival.com to find out more about the Austin Film Festival and Conference each October.